Hi, I am Molly Cerno, and I am an artist and curator and cultural programmer. These all live under the umbrella of my, I guess, company, one could say, uh, Push Projects. This is Coherence Podcast, the show about how multidisciplinary creatives and artists make sense of all the different things they do. I'm your host, Melissa Wong, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Molly Cerno about how she early on realized that to be an artist and to also sustain a certain kind of quality of life, that she needed to get a nine to five job. She's worked at some amazing companies as an early employee from TED to Kickstarter. She's someone who just bursts with creativity when you speak with her and currently as the mom of two and having (laughs) survived the pandemic, she's really rethinking domesticity. And so I'm so excited to share this, this conversation with you. Let's go. I am joined today by Molly Cerno here. So good to be with you, Molly. And you and I have a shared overlap, but we we think we missed each other when we used to work at Kickstarter. But before I divulge too much more about you, I would love for you to share how you generally introduce yourself when you are meeting someone new, like say you're at a, a party or just you get that normal kind of annoying question of what do you do? What do you, what do you say? Well, I think that that is a really interesting question because it seems simple, but for the purposes of this podcast, it's actually very layered. And in my personal journey, I've come to feel the most comfortable answering that question differently depending on who I'm speaking to. So if I am within a milieu of people who kind of understand the multi-hyphenate creative space, I will say, you know, I'm a curator and an artist that works in bringing creative practices to unorthodox spaces or, you know, creates socially driven installations or things along those levels. When I'm talking to somebody in, for example, when I pandemicked in a a community that really had no entry point to the world that I am in professionally, (laughs) I would have to use things like I worked at TED or I worked at Kickstarter doing cultural programming. This is what it meant. So um, it was a bit harder actually to for me to do the elevator pitch, which is something I'm constantly redefining. I think there's a lot of freedom in being a multi-hyphenate. I'm like using this now as if it's like an identifier of who I am. But I think one of the beauties of it is that there is a specific freedom you have because you can alter that description as you grow. It doesn't feel fixed like I'm an astronaut or (laughs) I'm a scientist or, you know, a senator. (laughs) Yeah, you strike me as someone who's constantly playing and iterating on many things in life. So it doesn't surprise me that that would apply to this of of just speaking about oneself. And I think sometimes I use artist and creative as larger headers almost to encompass different kinds of mediums and forms you know, because of that umbrella nature. And yet I know that it's, it's challenging for many people to really step into the artist identity. And I was curious what that road has been like for you. And when you felt like you could truly say, I'm an artist. It's been interesting because I used to feel like you couldn't be an artist unless you were kind of professionally employed, whether that was through a gallery or at a cultural institution or whatnot, um, that that term was really um, reserved for a specific class of creative person. And as I grow up, I do feel 
very differently about it. And I don't, I now think that being an artist is less of a choice and more of a mindset and an identity. I, last big exhibition I did, or rather performance I did, was at the Getty Museum, which is obviously a huge cultural institution. And that was years ago, four years ago. And I still feel comfortable calling myself an artist because, as I suggested before, my title changes, but my creativity and my creative output doesn't. Um, it just takes different forms. And I feel like what kind of once you're an artist, you're always an artist. Um, so I guess that's a bit of a different reaction to the question. I mean, I do think that going to grad school and then being, you know, brought into the gallery world and into the more formal art world, I felt more comfort claiming those terms. But again, as I kind of am suggesting, looking back at that, that seems like a bit of a superficial way I was identifying my output as an artist. I'm really glad you're giving voice to this because I, I work with many clients and just talk to people who feel like they can't really say they are a thing unless they have a recent, I don't know, project or some sort of outcome as evidence of that thing. And so knowing that being an artist is really a mindset, it just gets to be with you wherever you are. I don't know, I suddenly picture like a little um, mollusk, like a little snail that gets to have all these different shells and different homes for it but really the internal squishy part is just always an artist wow I love that you actually used that because <laughs> for some reason when I first got autocorrect on my you know gmail or whatever my name would always accidentally be signed mollusk so you're tapping into something <laughs> very deep <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. So there can be these kind of external accolades and formal accreditations that people feel like help uh, substantiate themselves as as an artist or as uh, whatever. But really, it's kind of living it and trusting in that identity. That's, I guess, what I'm taking from what you shared. <laughs> Most certainly. And I think because I was navigating the world of galleries. And I really started to kind of connect to my value system and understand like, where do I think money should be spent? And what is the most valuable thing to me? And where are my time and my energy and my resources? Those maybe questions shifted where, how I wanted to shape my career, but it didn't change my creativity or my ideas. So it really made me understand there is this through line. So precisely as you were saying, this sort of evidence through uh, uh, your newest opening or where your newest opening was or, you know, who's collecting your work or if that work is getting then brought to a museum. It just felt less significant to me because I understood that there was an umbilical cord through everything I did. And that involved kind of my, (laughs) as kind of cheesy as it sounded, like my blood, sweat and tears, my mind, my soul, my, you know, that electricity that happens in the middle of the night when you have an idea and that never changed. Mm. Uh, That metaphor of the umbilical cord is really potent too. I haven't really thought of of that um, as related to any sort of <laughs> creative process. So I, I'm sure we're going to dive into that that real aspect of, of one of your hats and your roles in a minute. But yeah, I thought just because I purposely don't want to give the standard bio of, you know, here's Molly and she's done this, this, and this. This is why you should care. I want to hear from you and how you might share with our listeners about the various hyphens that you hold? Yeah, I think that I want to start by saying, not only am I a Gemini, but I'm also a kind of a constant seeker. That's what drives me. Kind of cultural expressions. I I mean, when I was in college, I was a dancer, you know, I was doing ballet, I was doing, um, I was in a Brazilian dance company. And I wanted to write subtitles for foreign films. 
so it didn't even occur to me that, you know, there were people in the world that other than like Georgia O'Keeffe or something, you know, I just I wasn't or wasn't really exposed to this formal art world in a way um, other than kind of going to museums with my family. Sort of. So I moved to New York. I met people who really brought in my whole concept of, of what art could be. And there was so much freedom in it because you could explore science. You could explore astronomy, astrology, uh, cultural aesthetics. I mean, really whatever under the term art. And the output was so radically different, whether it was a painting, whether it was uh, a, a social sculpture, it just, that freedom was so attractive to me. So I started to pursue a multitude of things. At a, in, my, in my very early 20s, I started a performance series called Cinema 16 in my friend's studio, who's a, a you know, really renowned painter, Jules de Ballancourt. He asked me, you know, would you like to try something in my studio? And I started to go through film archives and, and dig through archives because I have a kind of researcher soul. And I picked out all these incredible experimental films. And then I paired them with contemporary musicians that were all living in my neighborhood at the time. And this became such a sort of popular series, Cinema 16. It ended up at the Met. It ended up at MoMA PS1. It ended up at, you know, the Museum of Moving Image and at the kitchen multiple, multiple, multiple times and working with Blonde Redhead and the drummer of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. And, and it just grew and grew and grew while simultaneously I was working in tech, first at TEDx, then at Kickstarter. So I always felt like I was navigating these variety, uh, a variety of different paths and then starting to make my own work. I was very interested in film and photography and I applied to Columbia for my MFA and I got in and I loved the program because it was so multidisciplinary. You could, you know, experiment with sound art. You could take anthropology classes. You could make, you know, a watercolor. It really all was fair game and was exposed to just the most tremendous thinkers. I mean, Dr. Oliver Sacks was there. Uh, John Kessler ran my program. Rick Rittier-Venesia, who's, you know, cooking in, in, uh, in cultural institutions. You know, just it's just so expanded my my mind, um, and the way I think it really formed the way I think and shaped, shaped it. And that being said, I still felt somewhat confined because then I had had this whole other experience in tech and, and sort of, um, storytelling and, and cultural production on the internet. So when I left, I really did have to experiment with at that point vacillating either by being in the art world or being in the tech world, and none of those felt like they suited me. And then somewhat recently, I got asked to develop an art program in a nightclub here in Brooklyn called Elsewhere. And this really was such an exciting project because I always felt like I did create social spaces in unique architectures. I was into this sort of radical nature of art and how could you make it accessible without diluting it. Again, I loved taking experimental films out of archives, which were dusty and and uh, non glamorous. There was no sex appeal to an archive, and then you know bringing them into these spaces with music and scoring and and, and just really remarkable walls to be housed in. I mean, any museum for that matter, and just brought these pieces that maybe people would feel like is paint drying, uh, where people were at the edge of their seat and just being exposed. In such a uh, to such a nonlinear way of, of storytelling in a very accessible way without diluting it, and this program did the same for me. And and then you know the pandemic hit and had to kind of think how do how do I stay radical in in this commitment to a cultural production? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for walking us through part of your journey. It's so. <laughs> quickly apparent how rich it's been. And I'm teeming with questions for you. One of which is just this balancing between all of your creative projects and your independent learning as an artist and a curator, and then also balancing life as an employee at various tech companies. Ultimately, it sounds like neither of them squarely were a fit, but 
What do you think were some of the forces motivating you to hold both of those at the same time? You know, I think that I have an adventurous spirit and a rebellious spirit, but also a very practical and scared one. You know, I wasn't really at a place where I financially felt like I, I didn't have that, like, throw caution to the wind attitude of like, I could live off of ramen and stay in a closet uh, in order to just pursue my art and wait till to see what that happens. I didn't want that version that was too scary for me. Conversely, I felt very I mean, this is a dramatic word, but almost imprisoned in employee life because I have a very independent spirit. And while I love collaborating, and I think it's the highest form of creativity in in my case, um, that, I don't know, a structure of reporting into basically somebody else's ideas was very, very hard for me. And I've always thrived best when I could kind of create the idea and work sort of independently within a team. So it really did give me the opportunity to to try on a variety of different hats. And I'm so grateful for those experiences because it really led me to where I am now, which is working independently and being able to spearhead my own projects, but also work for other people to infuse my ideas, my strategy, my curation, my programming, my network, which I feel a network is kind of a funny word because it sounds sort of pejorative, but I think it's holy. I mean, my relationships that I've built on this very eclectic road, I think is so much part of the responsibility of my, I don't want to say success, but my happiness, my fulfillment, and and why I've gotten to do as many things as I have. Mm, yeah. I, I don't think you said exactly this, so tell me if I'm misreflecting it, but it's almost like you knew that you didn't want to be in the closet eating top ramen. So some of the security that the full-time job afforded helped be a foundation for for some of your explorations and getting to experiment with more freedom and ease in the, the art world. Is that, did I, did I make that up or? <laughs> yeah, I always thought it was so funny about New York where you could have basically someone's dream job, the head of a major magazine and head editor of a major magazine or, you know, the director of a wonderful organization or nonprofit or, you know, the head of a museum. But they're all moon- moonlighting to be like, an author or they really want to be a filmmaker. And I think that's what's kind of the beauty about being in this career culture of New York is that people are able to kind of wear multiple hats and and it's very accepted. Um, You could be the head of um, a museum, but also really uh, trying to be a filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. I love that about my time in New York, just the the seeking nature of so many people there. And I think a lot of people can be frightened at time that getting a full-time job might detract and take away from their energy or their precious resource of time. And when it comes to their artistic pursuits, and I'm wondering if you've ever saw ways that those two worlds there was a bridge and that they actually could support each other in ways just beyond the financial. Absolutely. I mean, I think that I always thought about what was helping me leverage everything that I did and how they could feed into each other and not compete, but rather nourish the multiple sides of myself as I was creating my path. That being said, I think most certainly was financial. And obviously time becomes a really significant portion of anybody with a creative practice. I took a few full-time jobs, but I almost always tried to negotiate part-time situations. And I was able to. And there was very many instances where people wanted me to come in full-time, but I could assure them that by rearranging XYZ that I would deliver the same thing at a part-time level so that I could have time for my creative practice. And, you know, I'm a mother of two now. So then that I needed time for other things that were extremely important to me, things, I mean, children, (laughs) Um, they're extremely important uh, and how I wanted to organize my life. So 
I think time is as, uh, for me, it was that sort of security um, was almost as important as financial. In other words, being able to organize what was given to somebody else and what's given to my own practice. Yeah. And I love the anecdote you gave about kind of <laughs> making an argument to a, a future employer that they could just hire you part-time. I mean, just even hearing you say that, it strikes me that you have to have some real confidence or at least project confidence to be in that kind of bargaining, negotiating space. And it makes me wonder, have you always been a pretty confident person? That's a really good question. You know, I wanted, I was something I was thinking a lot about in preparation for today is sort of like the how I built this is like how I decided to be where I am or how I, what led me to where I am. And I think for me, my mentor who I worked with was beyond instrumental and I cannot speak more passionately about working with a mentor in one's life in some capacity. And I think just having, I think I had the seeds of a confident person. I saw a lot of confident women growing up. So I was lucky for that. But it really was the combination, of course, of experience. But working with somebody who like gives gas to your engine, like building you up and and believing in you and helping you sculpt language when you don't have it. I mean... I think about how my children, when they're like, one is learning to talk and you have to kind of say things over and over again to, till you make it, till you get there. And, and even having somebody with more experience, wiser, who's kind of been around the circuit, helping me even sculpt language, um, helped me find my own voice so that I could do things like negotiate salaries, negotiate pricing, negotiate time. And it makes me do, it makes me feel, you know, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of the multiple hats, um, it does, it did, it did really help me because I do think language is a big part of it. Sometimes I think we just don't know literally what to say in these moments. We might have the instinct, mm -hmm. we might have the feeling, we might even have the confidence that we can do it. But even coming up with the words of like, this is how I can say it. And this is how I make somebody believe in what I'm, what I'm saying, what I can do. Totally. Yeah. Having the language and then sometimes just even the space to practice hearing them come out of our mouths and not having it to be a performance. How, I mean, so many people want a mentor, but I think feel at a loss of <laughs> how to find this mystical mentor. Did it happen organically for you or how did, how did it kind of move from just two people to you being able to say, I have a mentor? I think two things. One, I think as evidence in uh, my journey, I am a relationship person. I believe in the strengths of your relationship is what builds your entire life, whether it's personal, professional, you know, spiritual, et cetera. Mine happened organically. When I first, first moved to New York, I worked for an artist. I was a kind of a studio manager for an artist who passed away. And she had really uh, no living family members except for uh, a sibling who she was not close to. So her best friend kind of came in and took over the estate. So I, you know, in, at 22 years old, was learning to manage an artist's estate, helped me think about legacy, helped me think about how one moves through their creative life and what they leave and what impact they they leave. But I was so lucky. I mean, really right place at the right time. I don't want to say that in terms of the loss of a life, but the person who did step in happened to be what will be not only a lifelong mentor, but a lifelong friend. She married my husband and I, um, mm. you know, she's been part of my, she is so deeply part of my life. Um, and, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, uh, calling her a mentor is, is seems almost like not powerful enough of a word. Mm, I see. Yeah, that's really special um, to come across a relationship like that. And to your point, like there's a mix of maybe right place, right time. But also, I always like to say that you put yourself in positions to be at the right place in the right time. And, and you strike me as someone who is in maybe in your 
relationship-driven, seeking nature, more opportunities can come your way when you kind of have that open-minded, open-hearted stance. You mentioned earlier that you see collaborating as the highest form of creativity. And I know for many creatives, it can be a lonely journey at times. How have you made collaboration happen? You know, my creative practice is not such that was ever kind of solitary in a studio. I felt like being in the world was part of the research I was doing, reading, experimenting, talking to people, seeing, you know, films, performances, etc. That was all sort of what my studio time was. So I think being in the world has always been kind of exceptionally important to my creative process. In fact, it's quite, it actually wasn't until the pandemic where I had to think about solitude and, and domesticity as a way to generate my creative experience. Yeah. And was Push Projects born out of, out of that? Funny enough, I launched it the January 2020 uh, when I left elsewhere. Um, So I felt so energized by the projects that I was already diving into within the first few weeks of launching it. And I mean, really dream, dream stuff that I could only um, uh, have wished to be a part of upon moving to New York, um, where I got to exercise so many voices and, and facets of my creative yearnings, one might say. But then, of course, you know, I don't need to talk about what happened or how it happened. And everything just really shut down for me. And I had to create projects where there was nothing before, uh, which is nothing that I've been unfamiliar with. But I actually really took the time to rethink how I want to exist (laughs) in my professional uh, life and in my personal life and and I have at that point had one young child. So really kind of s- sitting with the majesty of of growth and, and watching a person blossom and develop uh, and all the patience it requires and all the, I mean, it would, it's just like staring at a seed and actually watching it grow versus kind of coming in and out of the garden and checking in. So like really spending time was so, uh, such a powerful pivot for me in terms of how I want to behave with everything and the patience I want to exercise in, in everything that I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have kids myself at the moment, but I, I can see why having and, and raising a child is the ultimate creative act. Oh my gosh. You know, I always like, uh, I, I had a performance at BAM a experimental sound performance I did called We of Me. I constructed hairbrushes that I filled with tiny little contact microphones. Then I soldered the brushes together and I, you could plug them into an amplifier. So when you brushed your hair, it would pick up every sound from your uh, exposure to your hair. And so I uh, choreographed and, and composed a, a almost hour long or 40 minute long soundscape which essentially was 20 men brushing each other's hair and their own hair plugged into various petals and whatnot I ended up collaborating again with my friend Brian Chase who's an incredible drummer for the Ayayas and a drummer for uh, his own experimental projects an author and I am so proud of this project and I am more proud of what I made for that than anything I had done since and up to that point and I remember reflecting on what it took and what I sacrificed. I mean, talk about like ramen in a closet. I mean, I didn't socialize. I didn't think about what I was eating for dinner and didn't prepare beautiful meals. I didn't, uh, I mean, I was just so, so focused on creating what I wanted to be my best work at that point. And when it was over, I thought, I don't, no, this is sort of was like a turning point for me. I don't think I want to keep doing this, um, to be proud of, like, I don't, I couldn't think of how I could do it better. Like I didn't want to keep putting in that level of sacrifice for all my creative projects. Yeah. It's, 
was looking at some of the video of the We of Me, and it's it's amazing. I can only imagine how much work went into making that happen. And yeah, and I can imagine why many people who might get to a, a what feels like a both a pinnacle moment, but also <laughs> realizing that the amount of sacrifice that went into it might need a really healthy break or turning to a qualitatively different creative project. I know that things evolve and there's been so many chapters and stages of your career, but even if we look at today as a snapshot, how do you know what to be doing with your time at any given moment? Just knowing that you are a mother of two, you are, you know, the the creator and the owner of push projects. How do you navigate all that? You know, I think I'm at a point right now where I have kind of taken my foot off the gas pedal and I'm not actively pursuing in the way I generally do. I'm at a place where I just feel like I'm learning and I'm very humbled by learning and letting things sort of organically evolve. But that feels like a quiet moment to be deliberate before I go on the offensive again, so to speak. I, as I was talking about before, time is so important to me and freedom around my time is so important. I have gotten, <laughs> I'm like a kind of cliche pandemic baker. Uh, and I've gotten like very passionate about bread and, and developing some kind of creative projects around it. You know, and so I'm using actually domesticity to really like aggregate a new body of work. But I don't feel in a mm. rush for it. I think if anything, I, I'm just so, I feel that like one of my most, I feel like I'm in grad school where you're just in this really awake phase and you're experimenting. I'm in process, not product phase, if that makes sense. And I'm just... I think the mm -hmm. pandemic awarded us actually this time to reconnect with process because we have been so driven into like, when's your next show? What is your output? What's, is your cookbook out? Is your EP out? Is your, you know, whatever it is. And everyone, you know, whatever the great pause, whatever it's called, I'm still kind of riding that wave. So while I'm involved in a variety of really exciting projects, I don't feel uh, the same urgency to like, go. I'm still in that learning and unlearning phase. Again, as a seeker, I think there's really important times where you have to kind of recalibrate. And that's where I'm personally at. I'm glad you are. And I think just, it seems like a tall order to think about being able to be in creation of a product mode all the time. We need moments of regrouping and digesting other things. And one thing that crossed my mind earlier when you were talking about being a seeker is that some people might be seekers in adventure and be consuming more of the time, like ingesting in their seeking. And, and then there are, I mean, not to make it so black and white, but on the other side of that consumption is creation in my mind. So I've just been really impressed at hearing how in your seeking, there's still this, this creative force within you that, that does help other people. I don't know, maybe it brings other people along with you in that collaboration and in, in, in what art can do right, to start that conversation. So I think it's great that you're taking a bit more of a pause and from the sound of it, you're still, <laughs> you're still finding ways to be thoughtful and creative, even if it is this sort of exercise around domesticity. Absolutely. I mean, there is nothing for me that has been more humbling, more magical, more demanding than being a parent. I mean, the way you have to show up, I mean, it's it's different than when talking about my show at BAM and all of this. Like, I like love sacrificing and giving up for the sake of supporting my children it's feels like an honor and and also all the creativity that goes into being a parent and I just feel like that being a parent among a pandemic has been such a um, 
almost spiritual experience because you really have to let go of your ego. And when you let go of your ego, uh, I think that just, I don't know, the possibilities are endless. More openness, more listening, more learning, which to me is just all the fodder for experimentation and creativity. Mm, Yeah. Beautifully put. And that's going to be a thought I'm definitely going to chew on and take away with me. I think as we... I feel like I could talk to you for forever. Um, but as we start to sort of wind, um, my mind almost wants to zoom out and think about this moment in the world, right? You talked about some of the gifts or challenges that the pandemic brought. What are you noticing from other artists or creatives? I don't know, tr- trends out there in terms of their, maybe their own attention or hibernating versus creating? Well, I actually think that (laughs) it's been really exciting for me to see domesticity as a platform for creativity. I read this really beautiful article about like the trend of cake and cake making and, you know, you know, Instagram cake stars to artists who are using cake as their medium, uh, which is both opulent, but also opulent and celebratory but also it's just you know eggs sugar flour you know stuff that's pantry uh and accessible in a time of uh being so in shut in i love seeing i love the seeing the kitchen and the garden and foraging and like kind of this reconnection to very um i don't know i guess it feels radical for me being in New York where everything is kind of outdoors and eating outdoors and life outdoors and talking on the phone outdoors and everything's so public, that sense of privacy and creativity and these kind of private moments has just been really inspiring to me because I think of it as true nourishment for oneself and also just really as kind of the most active giving is what you do uh, with your private time and how you give it Mm -hmm. back to other people. Yeah, that's, a, I'm just orienting this perspective in New York, having yeah lived in Brooklyn for many years myself, just almost picturing all these little nests, these little spaces and rooms that we live in flipped inside out. And it feels like New York's already such a, a public place, but to really dial that up to the extent that I'm sure it felt makes makes for a different looking city for a moment. Yeah. And I think that like what came out of it is like, I I don't know, there's also a sense of self-sufficiency, which I think is, uh, has been interesting. I like seeing what people do with that as well. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything, just knowing that some of the people listening might be multidisciplinary artists themselves or aspiring, any perspective or even piece of advice that you'd want to impart to them? Yeah, I did want to share something that we had talked about, but also in conjunction with this sort of what I was talking about, you know, grappling with my need for security, but financial and also, you know, some way of organizing my time as well as my desire to create my own projects. I I think that there tends to be this choice for creative people of like full-time job versus the freedom of just making it as an artist And through my experiences and the people I've met and the, I mean, wild range of what people come from, when I really understood the ways that a lot of art is made um, and the support it takes, you know, whether that's somebody's personal financing or family or whatever, just that and again, I'm I'm coming from a complete place of privilege. Um, it just was kind of freeing for me because I realized to have the life that I want, you know, which does involve uh, certain luxuries, I suppose one might say, where I wanted to have a garden in a backyard or whatever it was and still live in New York. I realized what it would take for me to get there And once I had that knowledge, I was actually able to sculpt my life and my jobs and the projects I take on and what I say yes to and and what I say no to based on that understanding. Uh, And it's been very 
it's important for me because I get to make really informed decisions versus thinking like, why can't I be rich and be a sound artist? You know, it, it, I mean, rich, I am not rich, but like, you know what I mean? Make my soul living that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you had to have that self-awareness early on. And it makes me think about how we can't always know what our path is, but how helpful it is to have these reflective times or just carving out the space to get a little bit clear about our vision. I mean, that's make a little plug for coaching here, but that's, that's what we're doing. That's <laughs> precisely, precisely, precisely it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just completely nailed it. It's like, I had to re, I had to be really honest with myself mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Not, not just think about, and I think these exercises of like, where do you see yourself in five years or 10 years? You know, I didn't have to just think about what my needs were for the next six months or this, for the next year. Cause sure, anyone could live, you know, uh, hand to mouth in those situations uh, for a short amount of time. Maybe people could do it for longer, but I had to be really very realistic with myself. To understand what my needs were and and how I wanted to construct my life, what was important to me. My time is important to me. You know, specific uh, amenities were important to me. And if those were, what would I, how, you know, kind of working backwards, where do I, what are the boundaries I make? Where do I draw the line? What do I say yes to? If I do say yes to things that are not going to service me financially, uh, what do I say no to in those cases? So I think that kind of, really being authentic with how you how you want to live is very very valuable lesson very true wise it's not just about carving out the space you got to it's about the quality and the honesty the brutal honesty that you have with yourself to to design a life that really suits your true needs so i think that's a beautiful message to to end on and uh, molly could you share where people could find you if they want to get in touch or check you out? Absolutely. I am push-projects.com. And you could always send me an email or DM me or <laughs> anything. I am a constantly... I, I also want to plug my newsletter, which I do really see as a source of not just my own research and things that I'm kind of consuming and thinking about for my projects, but also the, again, my relationships, people that I have worked with are working with have been on my journey with me. There's, it's just kind of, I think of it as like a a consortium of, of uh, my community and a way for people to also share their impact, what they're doing. Um, So if anyone has projects they want to highlight, that's a, great place to showcase it. Amazing. Thank you so much, Molly, for your time, for your hard-earned wisdom and just your candor. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this. This was so much fun. It's so great to, to know you and know what you're working on and who you're servicing because it feels so timely as we are just negotiating new ways of working and identifying ourselves. There's anxiety and freedom too. (laughs) All right, let's digest this together. So we just heard a conversation with Molly and one of the things that she talked about that I really want to double down on or focus on today is the idea that our network is holy. I think there's a lot of baggage around the word networking, that it is something that is inauthentic, right, to be networking. And it's an interesting time to be talking about this, right? We're still in a pandemic time. A lot of us have found our lives becoming more insular over the past few years. I know mine has. And so it's almost like our social muscles have atrophied a little bit. So it's going to take even more effort to try to build up that that muscle mass, right? To, to get in the practice of being in relationship. And when you are a creative who's building a career 
any career, it's so relationship driven, whether we like it or not, whether you're looking for a new job, whether you're looking to make moves within your company, whether you're looking to get a new gig or contract job or be shown at some certain space, right? Like all of this happens through extending ourselves in relationship. And so one thing that I see with my clients is that everybody knows this, at least I think a lot of people know it in their head. And sometimes it feels kind of obvious to suggest to my clients, hey, maybe you should do some outreach. What is missing and what I think where where I think I can help clients is to actually challenge them or invite them to do that outreach because there's so many things we know are good for us, right? We know uh, we need to eat healthy and exercise, you know, and doing it is a whole other thing. So having someone ask you, reach out to three people this week or who in your organization can be an ally to you How can you reach out to them and go on a coffee date? Pick their brain. We get scared of asking people for things because we don't want to be a bother, because we, yeah, think we're infringing on their time. And in my own personal experience, I don't, for whatever reason, I haven't been as afraid to do that outreach, whether that's with a warm introduction, meaning someone I know personally or have a friend of a friend, or even cold outreach, which is kind of this idea of I have no known existing connection to the person. So I'm reaching out without them really knowing me. And I have been helped by so many people along my own professional journey that when now I'm in a position where people might reach out to me, people ask me, you know, about my coaching journey, how did I arrive at coaching? People have asked me about how to start their own event space because that's something that I did. And each time I've been so honored to be asked and I have wanted to help this person because of a bit of a, a karmic awareness that a lot of people help me to get to where I am. And it makes me feel good to give back and to share my experience with someone else. So I'm, I'm one data point. I know not everybody might feel the exact same way, but I think more people feel this way than you might think. People feel good when they are helping. And even from an ego-driven stance, it just feels good to be asked for your expertise, right? That's kind of a flattering thing. So an important question when it comes to building a network, building relationship is, what's, what's the worst that could happen? And I think for a lot of people, when it comes to outreach and relationship building, maybe the worst thing is rejection, right? Someone doesn't respond or someone says, hey, I'm, I'm busy, right? I've definitely been there. I've reached out to people and people I thought would you know, have time for me who said, you know what? I'm just really busy right now. Can you get in touch with me in a couple months, right? There was an initial like, dang, ouch, I wish, I wish they'd been able to connect with me sooner, But ultimately, I moved on, right? And I think like any practice, the more we do something, the more comfortable we are, the stronger we get. So if I continue to reach out to a few people, don't hear back, a couple people might even say, hey, I'm busy or I can't can't really help you. I I add that to my collection of data points. and, And for every couple people that I don't hear from, I do hear from one or two. And you just never know what kind of outreach is going to let land you the next opportunity. When I was transitioning to coaching, I really did a lot of work to step back and ask myself what kind of role and company I wanted to work for, and ultimately, like what kind of mission I, I had for myself. And in that process, I reached out to all of my friends in my network just to say, hey, these are the kinds of roles I'm looking for these are the kinds of companies I'm excited by. Like, do you, do you know anyone? Is there anyone that comes to mind? Could you connect me? Could you uh, flag an organization for me? And it was through that email that I got several responses back, including one that clued me into an organization that I still work for today, Experience Institute. I didn't know they existed before that email. And a friend wrote back and said, hey, based on what you told me, this organization fits the bill. And 
I just reached out. I just asked them if they needed help with program management, something I was interested in at the time. And I didn't hear back. And maybe a few weeks went by and I still kept them in mind. And then I reached out again and I just said, hey, just checking in to see if you're interested. And I got a response back within a couple of days and they said, oh, so sorry, we've been busy or we, we missed your email, right? We're interested in talking with you. And over two years later, I'm still very much on the team. So that's just one example of trying to put yourself out there and just see, just take, take a leap, right? That's a very experienced institute concept, actually. We can take small steps at times, maybe lots of different outreach. Maybe we take a leap and we reach out to someone we're super excited by. I was really excited to learn more about Priya Parker and maybe work for her new course. She just launched a course about uh, the art of gathering, and she's someone I've followed for a long time and really respect. I had a warm connection, but a very distant one, and I just reached out and said, hey, this person said to reach out to you, and I was, I was really delighted that she wrote back, actually, and said that she didn't necessarily have a spot for me on the team to help support the course, but that she would keep me in mind. And that felt so exciting to hear back from her personally. And then months later, when the course was actually live, she remembered and she wrote back to me and asked me if I would help be a beta tester for the course. So just another example where I took a leap. I, I reached out to someone who I thought was a stretch, who I knew was going to be busy. And I just said, what's the worst that could happen? Right? So I ask you, take a moment and think about what an outreach practice might look like for you. And think about who might be a leap, a stretch for you to reach out to. Two to three people. And my challenge for you is to reach out to them. Just give it a shot. What do you have to lose? And see and see what comes back at you. All right. Hope you can take this personal challenge, put it into action, get some learnings from it, and hope you are pleasantly surprised by what comes back at you. That's our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing Molly's thoughts about how the pandemic gave us time to cultivate better practices in our private life as she rethinks domesticity. I hope that you took away from this conversation the importance of having the space to be brutally honest with yourself about what kind of a life you really want, to make sure that the efforts to design that life are actually suiting your true needs and support you in this quest that we're all on for fulfillment, contentment, and ultimately to just be ourselves. 